Morning, everyone. How are we doing this morning? Good. Happy? Good. Glad to hear that. Um, I, I do want to just have you for a moment look at that bulletin insert in your Bible for the 21 days of prayer. And uh, this is something that I'm really excited about. I reached out to Jen Hevener and Nancy and the, the prayer team, and I said, you know, Converge every single year in the month of January does this prayer initiative, 21 days of prayer, and I would love to see us as a church get involved in this. And of course, they became more excited about it than I was. Uh, we, we really believe that prayer is the difference maker for our church. Uh, if we want to see God use us to do great things in this world, if we want to see impact in our homes, as Scott was saying in the video, we have to become a praying church. And I believe that there's lots of pockets of prayer in our church, but I want to see it become effusive throughout the church. So what this will mean is, uh, first, you'll notice on the back, uh, there's that follow, gather, connect. Uh, it will mean following along with us for 21 days in a devotional called The King's Agenda. We have purchased a bunch of copies of that devotional. You can go and pick one up. It's $4. And essentially what we'll be doing is kicking it off next week for the 21 days of prayer. It would begin the following Monday. You would pick up, and I would encourage you to sideline your devotions for those 21 days, whatever you do in your personal quiet time with the Lord. Sideline that for this 21 days so that you can focus on prayer and in the devotionals in the King's Agenda. And then you'll also notice the, the gather there. Uh, there. There will be opportunities through the week, through the 21 days, to come to the church's prayer room and just spend some time in prayer. Even if you don't have a full hour, but you would like to be involved in prayer during one of these times, I would encourage you to do that. And uh, I want to kind of alleviate some responsibility here. You don't have to go to all of these opportunities. I'm suggesting one of these opportunities. And uh, I got to tell you, it's good to take pause out of your week, especially in these 21 days and pray together. And then also we have Connect. There will be opportunity on Facebook, a daily scripture verse, and you can get involved in that by just simply commenting on Facebook and telling others, sharing stories about what God's laying on your heart or what you're seeing as you pray. One more thing that I want to draw your attention to is next week, uh, we're starting our membership class. And uh, this church firmly believes that we, the church, are our members, uh, the people that partner together to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, I want to invite you into the membership of our church. And if you're wondering what that is all about, next week, second service in the cafe room, which is downstairs, there will be membership classes. And I would love to see if you've never become a member of the church, you in that class. So pray about it, think about it, but definitely get out to that table and get one of those booklets for 21 days of prayer. All right, so as we think about the idea of prayer this morning, the elders back in November took some time and went away for a weekend, and we want to start creating a tradition where the elders of the church go off and fast and pray together to ask God for two goals every year, one to two goals that we would like to focus upon as a church. 
I think sometimes as you're thinking about what you would like to happen for your church, you say, oh man, here's 20 things that I want to see get better or be different. And the truth is, you can't really do 20 things well at the same time. You, you tend to do 20 things 10% well. Uh, but you can do one or two things well when you give it your focused attention. So we identified two goals. The first is family ministry, and the second is generosity. You'll notice up there on the screen, family ministry, we want to strengthen and develop our family ministry at Osterville Baptist Church. The second, generosity, we want to promote and develop a greater culture of generosity at Osterville Baptist Church. So we're going to spend two weeks on family ministry and then we're going to follow that up with two weeks in generosity. And then I'll tell you a little bit more in the weeks to come, but we're also going to alive thrive around generosity and stewardship. So we'll talk about that. So today we pick up with family ministry. And, and to get into this, I want to tell you a little bit about my story. Now, some of you know my story, others of you don't know my story, and that's fine. But I tell you this to tell you that I have a personal heart for family ministry. I care about it. I care about it, one, because I have kids, and I love my kids. And I'm also the pastor of this church, so I love your kids. And I love your grandkids. Uh, back in 2006, it was, Katie and I, uh, we'd been married for about a year, and we were in college wondering what the next steps of life were. And so I felt called into ministry, and we went off to Moody Bible Institute together so that I could be theologically trained in the Bible. At that time, we believed that we were going to become foreign missionaries. So we went off to Moody Bible Institute. I always joke with young people who are telling me that God's putting a call of ministry on their life, I say we really romanticize it at this point. We think that God's calling us off to mud huts somewhere in Africa, and it just sounds like the coolest thing in the world that we can engage in. Uh, well, it really is cool, and if God does call you into that, pursue it with a whole heart. But while I was in seminary, at the same time, I believe that you should be serving in your local church, and so I got involved with a youth program, and it was there that God began to develop uh, a love in my heart for another unreached people group we call teenagers. Now you fast forward the tape to 2009, Katie's working in turnaround schools in the city of Chicago. A turnaround school is basically where a school has failed so abysmally that they fire everybody and they restart the school from the bottom up. I mean, just imagine walking into that. At the same time, Katie's pregnant with our son, our second, Zach. I'm doing ministry in Dalton, Illinois, serving in a multi-ethnic church, while at the same time pursuing uh, this, this call in ministry. And uh, it was there that I was surprised that the Lord changed my heart from foreign missions and put youth ministry on my heart. And to come out of left field, I mean, I didn't go into seminary for this purpose, and yet, here was this call. What followed from that was a nationwide search uh, to find a church that would be willing to take a guy that has no idea what he's doing uh, 
and become the youth pastor of that church. And this is now 2009. As I was engaging in that church, I found this wonderful little church named Osterville Baptist Church located in this place that I'd never heard of before, Cape Cod. Because, you see, I was out in Chicago, and we don't look you know, beyond like the state of Ohio. <laughs> well, praise God, uh, we came here, and it was one of those moments that, I, again, you just you can't put into words. But as I was praying about coming to this church, the Lord was stirring in me a desire to be at this place for a long time. And uh, here I am today, I'm no longer the youth pastor, I'm the senior pastor of the church. Now when I was coming to this church, there was a burden on my heart with youth, and it went something like this. I had read statistics that a lot of young people were leaving the faith. Uh, I, I nearly had done this at the age of 16, 17, and so I was praying, Lord, how can I have some kind of impact with students? And, you know, that's the big question when it comes to family ministries. What can we do to keep young people committed to the faith for a lifetime? That's, that's really what we want to see in a church when we're doing family ministries. And so I was reading about it. I was conversing with people in the field. And there's all kinds of suggestions along the lines of this is how you create impact. Some people are saying, well, you got to teach them more about apologetics because, you know, young people are leaving the faith at college and, and they need to be prepared when they get to that college scene to be able to defend their faith. Other people are saying, well, you know, you got to dump a lot of money into the youth program. You have to create these environments that are fun and energetic and, and the youth pastor has to be fun and energetic and that will get the kids to the church. The kids will get saved and then we're good from there. But it turns out and this is from the perspective of decades of research, that those strategies have failed. They haven't worked. Um, we, we can think of all kinds of instances where kids have grown up through church family ministry programs, and they're solid. They're walking with the Lord today, but we don't have the kind of results where we really feel encouraged and would say, boy, I'm excited about this. 90% of our kids are leaving the church and they're walking with the Lord. Well, here's what I didn't understand, but I've come to understand. You see, when you think about the long-term view of impact, and you can't think short-term with impact. You know, short-term with impact, they advance the slide ahead of me. It's all right, guys, you're fine. But the short-term view of impact is, I want to see 100 kids in a youth program. That's very short-term. you got 100 kids. That's exciting. The long-term view of impact says, I want to see a kid who grew up through a church at the age of 40 discipling their kid to follow the Lord. You see the difference between the two? And what I learned about the long view of impact is this. Parents eat youth pastors and church programs for breakfast. Now, that is a play off of Peter Drucker's famous quip, where he says, culture eats strategy for breakfast. I'm not trying to make anyone mad and say that parents mess up the work of the church or anything like that. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. But Peter Drucker essentially said this, you could create the best strategies for an organization. You could come in, have this lofty strategic vision, three to five year goals. They could be perfect. 
But if the culture of the organization works against those strategies, culture wins. Culture always beats strategy. And the same thing could be true when we think about family ministry programs. We could create the best family ministry program in the world, but if the culture of a child's home is not Christ-centered, the culture of the home tends to win the day. And so this is what youth workers and people in children's ministry have been seeing. They're, they're asking questions. They're like, why is it that so many students seem to struggle to live out their faith every day? And why is it that young men and young women aren't holding to deep biblical truths and they're dealing with inner spirituality problems? And, and there's also issues like of diet and dating and dress. And in here is the difficult but the obvious truth. These are the same issues that we, their parents, are dealing with. We too struggle with faith and authentic spirituality and Christ-centered identity. And why do parents struggle? Well, I would submit to you because parents haven't been discipled well by the church. So now you start to see how this becomes a vicious cycle, right? And I think the cycle has happened for several reasons, uh, but I want to identify one of the big reasons why I think this cycle has happened. And it, it has something to do with this. We are an outsourcing culture. We look to the experts. Uh, you want your child to learn a foreign language, you find an instructor. You want your child to get good grades, well, you have to think about finding the best school, the best teachers, the best resources to help them get those grades. Pro athlete, you get them on a traveling team so that they can become the next Tom Brady. And uh, we're still a little bit hurt that they didn't get in beyond in the playoffs, but we'll get off of that. And you, you take that same principle now and you apply it to their spiritual life. I want my kids to have Jesus in their world, so therefore, I need to find a church that offers the best programs that are fun, attractive, and promote spirituality. And the church, of course, has been all too happy to comply with this and take on the same mentality and say, go ahead, send them to us and, and we'll take care of it. But the problem is that that greatly, greatly misses God's design for how children best grow to know Him, love Him, and follow Him. So let's consider God's design for a moment. You see, God's design is that the family is God's best plan for spiritually raising children. I recently read um, G.K. Chesterton. He was... Uh, commenting on the American and British jury system, and his point proves to be true as we think about this too. He said, the trend of our epoch up to this time has been consistently towards specialism and professionalism. We tend to have trained soldiers because they fight better, trained singers because they sing better, trained dancers because they dance better, uh, specially instructed laugh laughers because they laugh better, and so on and so on. Yet, our civilization has decided, and very justly decided, that determining the guilt or innocence of men is a thing too important 
to be entrusted to trained men. When it wishes to light, uh, wishes for light upon that matter, it asks men who know no more about the law than I know, but who can feel the things that I feel in the jury box. When it wants a library catalog, solar system discovered, any trifle of that kind, it uses up its specialists. But when it wishes anything done which is really serious, it collects 12 of the ordinary men standing round. And the same thing was done, if I remember right, by the founder of Christianity. Now you see how this applies. Raising children to know God, love God, and follow God is too important a task to be entrusted to experts who are emotionally not engaged with that child, who do not love that child and have a a vision for that child like the parent does. It was never God's plan. God created the family so that Children could be nurtured and raised in a safe and loving environment that was healthy. And and you see this in the beginning when you look at the book of Genesis. It begins with God creating Adam. He sees that Adam's alone. And then in Genesis 2.18, he says, it's not good for man to be alone. So he creates Eve. And then after marrying the two of them, God tells them in Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply. Essentially, God's saying what? Have a family. Have a family. Now, we live in a fallen world. I recognize that. And I know that some of you have come from horrible family backgrounds. Other of us feel like when it comes to conversations on family, I'm on the outside looking in. My family doesn't look like the biblical ideal. Others of us are saying, boy, I could have used a sermon like this 20 years ago. Here's the deal. In this broken world, all of us are only ever moving towards the ideal. When you're on Facebook and you see those pictures with people with bright, shiny, pearly white teeth and they're always happy as a family together, i got to tell you, that's probably not what the inner workings of their home look like. No one is the ideal family. So as a Christ follower, I begin with where I am. This is the place I'm at now. And God encourages me to move towards the ideal as I grow in Him. Do you see what I'm saying here? So here's what the ideal can provide for our children when we strive towards it. We can create a place that is loving and safe. We can raise children to be independent adults. Uh, We can impart moral values to them. We can also help our kids to learn who they are. This is what a parent can do. One of the greatest blessings a parent can give to a child is to say, this is who you are, and I accept who you are. And also, you can represent God to your kids. You can teach them to know God love God, and follow God. As you look at all of those gifts that we could give to our kids, now you have to ask the question, which is most important? We have to ask, what purpose is most important for our children? If we as a church wish to have an impactful family ministry program, 
we all need to be on the same page with this question, right? If the church says one thing and the parent says a different thing, you can see how those two messages would be in conflict with one another. And that wouldn't be good for our kids, would it? And I think when you ask that question, and maybe I'll just ask it of you, what do you want most for your kid? <laughs> if you're a grandparent, what do you want most for your grandchildren? If you're just a person who loves children and you're serving in the church family ministry program, what do you want most for kids? I think that when we answer that question, like if we had a magic genie and we could rub the genie lamp and the genie pops out and we are asked that question, I don't know if any one of us would have like a stated, this is what I want most for my kids, but we're operating under some kind of assumption or worldview. And if you boil that down for most parents, they would answer the question this way. I just want my kids to be happy and fulfilled. And then we start constructing their life plan. And the life plan, I think, looks something like this. For many, it involves their school and career path. And if we're religious parents, we also want them to be good kids, so we factor church into the equation. But what we really emphasize is working hard in school so that they get good grades. And then uh, once they get those good grades, we know that they're going to get into that good college. The good college means the good job, which will help them to achieve a healthy standard of living. And this is going to give them access to a better quality of life, which in turn will make them, you guessed it, happy and fulfilled. Now, are these bad goals for our kids? <laughs> no, it's not a bad goal for our kids. I want my kids to be happy and fulfilled. I'm not some kind of monster. Uh, I want my kids to be in, in a successful career path. And, you know, if they just happen to make some good income when dear old dad is older and decide to buy him a boat, I'm not going to complain about that either. But the problem is, if that's our purpose, we're going to miss the mark every time because happiness is not a destination. If you aim for happiness and fulfillment, you're going to miss the mark every time. It's like walking into a room full of fog, trying to grab hold of the fog and handing it to your kids. When we look at the Bible, Solomon was involved in that life plan. You know, the life plan of achieving happiness, getting all of the things, all of the stuff, all of the experiences. And, and I want you to see what Solomon discovered along the way. In Ecclesiastes 2.1, he said, I said to myself, come on, let's, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. And then verses 4-8, through eight, I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself. I had everything a man could desire. Verse 10, I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything, verse 11, I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. It turns out that we hand our kids the same uh, worn-out attempts to find happiness that we pursued. We're running on a hamster wheel. 
<laughs> That's all we've ever been doing. We've been running in on the hamster wheel. And so we say to them, there's your hamster wheel. We've been told that there's gold at the end of the magic rainbow. We got to the end of the magic rainbow. We didn't find the gold. But I got to tell you, when you've heard something long enough, when you've been told long enough that this is the way that it is, you begin to believe that. And even if you didn't find the gold at the end of the magic rainbow, you just try to set things up for your children to avoid the mistakes that you made so that they could find the gold at the end of the magic rainbow. And thus, your parents did for you, and thus their parents did for them. Well, can I suggest something? How about we get off the hamster wheel and stop looking for the gold at the end of the magic rainbow? Happiness is not a destination. I want to tell you, it's a byproduct. It's a byproduct of pursuing the God who created us. Remember, this is what Scripture tells us. Psalm 1611, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hands there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 34.8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Psalm 37.4, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. So friend, if you want your child to experience real happiness, real fulfillment, it is only found in Jesus because happiness is a byproduct of knowing Jesus, loving Jesus, and following Jesus. And that's why our pastor to student families, the man with the distinguished beard, James told us last week in Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. We don't bring about the greatest good in their world by creating a life plan and adding a little Jesus to the life plan. We bring it about by making Jesus the life plan. And that's where church and parents have to agree upon. That's what we have to agree upon. If we, if we can both see that together, then we can create a family ministry program that will have lasting, long-term impact in the lives of children. So how do we do that, you're asking? Well, I can't give you all the answers, but you guys are great at asking questions. So I'm going to give you the big answer to that question, and it is this. Parents pass along the faith that they have cultivated. You can only pass along the faith that you have cultivated within yourself. We call this generational transfer. That's what that is. Generational transfer is passing along the faith that you have cultivated. Now, your kids are smart. They know when you are saying, do as I say, not as I do. And they do not want to adopt your hypocrisies. Uh, as a youth pastor, I had plenty of conversations with students where they said, my parents are saying this will make me happy, but they're not happy, therefore I don't want that. That's why millennials are not career-driven like past generations. But they will adopt... I would submit to you your deeply held convictions that are real and felt in the home. So the first part of that is you must cultivate a healthy faith. Proverbs 14.26, Who who fears the Lord has a secure fortress, and for his children it will be a refuge. Proverbs 20.7, The righteous man leads a blameless life. Blessed 
are his children after him. That's why we talk about a vision statement all the time that is meant to cultivate faith, worship, transformation, mission. Worship is all about coming to know who God is, all that God is with all that you are, so that you love him from the core of your being. That's why church on Sunday morning is so important to set aside that marked time to say that God's special. He's the center of my world and I'm going to designate time where I meet with Him and worship Him and sit under His preached Word. Transformation deals with our spiritual growth. And God's placed you in a Christian family called the church. And the Bible says that you can't grow without your church. Why? Because the Holy Spirit grows us through the spiritual gifts of other Christians. So if I'm not in church fellowship, I can't receive those gifts from other Christians, and they don't receive those gifts from me when I'm not there. That's why we emphasize things like group discipleship and in prayer together and life-on-life ministry. God uses those things to grow us. Mission is the overflow of worship and transformation. You have not become a mature Christian until you develop a heart for others. And as God transforms us, we stop thinking mostly about ourselves and we become generous in our disposition. And that pours out into the lives of other people's friends. If you want a faith that is worth passing along, you have to get into that plan, worship, transformation, mission. That's the kind of faith that when you pass that to your children, they're going to want that kind of faith. So now we've got to talk about the second part, passing it along. You know, one of the reasons I think that faith hasn't transferred well in our society is we have developed this value that faith is a personal, private thing. I don't talk about my faith. I don't have people see me pray. Uh, you know, it, I, I heard a story from Katie about a pastor that she had read about who was talking to one of the key leader's kids in the church and the key leader's child was praying for the dad's salvation. And the dad was a committed Christian. And the pastor said, why? And the daughter said, because I never see dad talk about Jesus, so I don't think he knows him. Well, look at what the Scripture speaks about generational transfer in Old Testament and New Testament. This is one of some of these passages. Proverbs 22.6 Train a child up in the way he should go and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's not a promise, but is a general statement of truth. Ephesians 6.4 Father, do not provoke your child to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. How can you do that if you don't communicate it to them? Psalm 78, 5 through 7, he commanded fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and rise and tell their children so that they should set their hope in their God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. You see, in Scripture, when it comes to generation transfer, parents hold the big R of responsibility. It's not the school system's job. It's not the government's job. It's not the media's job. It's not even the church's 
ultimate job. We're involved. The church is involved. But the big R of responsibility is with you, parent. You hold it. And you can't delegate that big R away. Now, there's some jobs in our job description that we know we can't delegate away. That's mine. That's my job. There's a conundrum left to us by the Greeks. Uh, it's called Theseus' ship. And essentially, Theseus was the founder of Athens, and as they wanted to honor him, they decided that they were going to keep his ship pristine. So over the years, as time passed, they would replace boards on the ship, and eventually the uh, conundrum came about uh, that they had replaced every single board on the ship. So this gave philosophers all kinds of things to think about and stare at their navel over. If, if, if we've replaced every board on this ship, is it still Theseus's ship? And we turn that philosophical question on ourselves when it comes to our children. If our children gain their spiritual priorities and values from other people, whose children are they? And that's why sometimes our kids come home from college and we're like, what happened? And we think that we lost them there, but in reality, what, what people are seeing who are researching this is it didn't happen there. It happened when they were 12. And then it moved on from there. So Deuteronomy 6, 4-7 through provides us with an alternative vision to outsourcing. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I have commanded to you today shall be on your heart. So you're cultivating the faith. You shall teach them diligently. You're passing it to your children and shall walk, talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Do you see the simplicity yet profundity of this? I hope you do. We transfer our faith in all of the mundane moments. It's not just organizing like a family worship time where we pull out the Bible or saying prayers around the dinner table, though I do hope that you're doing those things as well. But in Deuteronomy 6, 7, the phrase, you shall teach them diligently, is the Hebrew word shenan, which means to chisel into stone or to wet a blade, actions implying repetitive, intentional, transformative activity. So your kids adopt Christ when Christ pours out of you in the everyday moments of life. What does that look like? Well, it looks like you just got that bill that was terrifying. And instead of giving in to anxiety, the first instinct is, I'm going to pray about this. It looks like that time when your kids had sewn Legos all over the carpet in an attempt to grow more Legos, and one of the sharpest Legos found the center of your foot. And then you just kind of hauled off and became like Godzilla in the room yelling. It looks like you coming back and saying, you know, Daddy sins too, and I shouldn't have spoken like that. Or that time that, Mom, you're driving in the car with your daughter, and 
she begins to say, do you know what my friend tells, told me the other day? And it is a doozy of a topic that you were not planning on talking with her about at that point. But then you pause and you say, you know, mommy was waiting to talk to you about this, but you're becoming a big girl in the Lord. And so let me tell you what God has to say about that. And let me tell you why that's true. It's about developing a culture as a family where we don't consume the church, but we come to the church to meet with God's people, to meet with Jesus, where we say as a family, we love the church. Friends, that is what generational transfer looks like. It's simple yet profound. It has all the marks of beautiful mundaneness. It's not a program. It's not glamorous. In fact, there are plenty of mornings where you wake up and say, I don't feel like chiseling stone today. But then you pray about it, and you go back, and you do it. Now, I'm going to close us, uh, but remember, we're talking about family ministry. <laughs> and you're sitting there thinking, okay, we're talking about family ministry, and all he did was kind of talk about parenting. <laughs> well, here's the deal. Family ministry begins with parents, because parents are at the center of family ministry. And I was talking, James and I, we had called up the district executive minister with Converge, his name's Tim Ponzani, and uh, as we we're forming this goal, and we we're telling them all of our lofty ideas and visions, and this is what we want to see happen with family ministry in the church, and Tim just kind of laid it out on the line with us and said, you know, it's great, and I love what you guys are saying, uh, kids do need to be shepherded by their parents. They, they do need to be spiritually raised by them. But here's the deal. Most parents are saying, great, how do I do that? You know, that is the million-dollar question, isn't it? And next week, we're going to talk about the church's role in this because the church partners with parents by equipping them to do the work of spiritually raising their kids. Now, I'm not going to be able to give you all of the answers next week on how you raise your kids. I just read a, a statistic release recently that there's 10 new parenting books every day that have been written, and it's something like 75,000 parenting books exist, okay? So I'm not going to be able to give you all of the answers, but I can tell you that God has given you the local church to help you. So here's the parting thought. You ready for this? as you consider raising your children in Christ, God never calls you to do something that he has not first given you the equipment to do. So God says in his word, you can spiritually raise your children, so I want to challenge you. Take them at his word. Shall we pray?